and welcome to episode 12 of season two of Crooked Crime Sisters. My name is Taylor. And I'm your host today. I don't have anything fun or exciting to announce or to even say other than I'm working on getting into more social media. You know, some people have suggested a meet and greet. Shout out to Andrew. And I've also been told that we need to be on YouTube and TikTok. I'm one of those um, 30-somethings that isn't really into all of that kind of stuff. So I can't guarantee that even if I did it, it would be great. So we'll see. I mean, I am super cool in real life. Don't get me wrong. But like, I'm not really gifted in showing all of that social media stuff. Anyways, let's get to it. I am just one of the sisters duo from the Pacific Northwest. And every Thursday, I'm here to give you the details of a crime that you may already know and discuss my thoughts and opinions. Like you, I am completely obsessed with true crime. Not in a morbid way. And I too realize that many criminals... Oh find the Pacific Northwest is the perfect place to make their twisted fantasies a reality. I'm not a professional by any means, but rather a crime enthusiast who likes to talk. So with that, let's get started. Alrighty, so for today's disclaimer, we have a graphic crime scene. Today's case discusses murder, sexual assault, and it is to this day, completely unsolved. So keep that in mind as I'm giving you details of things because guess what? It's all up in the air and we don't have the answers. Let's get to it, shall we? All right, so I'm actually really excited because, 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 because I love to give everybody like the context, uh, the background of the crime. So I love to give you like the time of year, uh, what was going on, pop culture, history-wise, as well as the location. And uh, today's case actually took place in a Portland neighborhood, and it wasn't called Portland at the time, but that's exactly where it was. And while I was doing some background history on Portland, because I want to just, you know, make sure I get my historical facts, I actually learned that in the 19th century, Portland, Oregon was the most dangerous port city on the West Coast. And I just want to ask, do we know why? By a raise of hands, do you know why it was this dangerous? That's right. Our fun little city has underground tunnels known as the Shanghai Tunnels, which were used to smuggle and traffic people, drugs, liquor, you name it, all those things. Nowadays, they're known for being super haunted and people can go in them and get spooked. But that should just really set the tone for today's case. Um, and for the record, I love, love, love cases that are older. And if you wonder and you're like, why, Taylor? Why do you love cases that are older? Well, first of all, it's a lot easier to like speak freely about people and be insulting because a lot of the times you're not insulting someone's actual family member. And if it is, it's like so distant that they're like, eh, didn't know the guy, so I can't really say anything. But also, just because time was different, I just feel like it transports you in just like a totally different world, even though it's the same world, but it's at a different time. And I just really, I really like that. So friends, put on your Elliot Ness caps or grab a cap like Peaky Blinders, because we are going on a fun ride back to 1911. First off, I just want to say for those of you who don't know, uh, I am a native Oregonian, having spent my childhood growing up between Central Oregon with my mom and the Portland metro area with my dad. It's my home. I love, love, love the city. I spent a year in Texas and I have traveled a lot, but nothing, you know, 
hits quite as much as home. So I love the Pacific Northwest. And yeah, that really has nothing to do with anything other than I just wanted to tell you something about myself. So there you go. I also just love to like nerd out about Portland because I just I really do love the city. It's full of rich history. And yeah, that's where today's case takes place. I learned that the Hawthorne Bridge was opened at the end of 1910, and it's actually still usable today, making it the oldest lift bridge in the United States. If you want to go back and listen to our episode that we did on Hospital of Horrors, where we talked about Oregon State Hospital, it was actually started, the Oregon State Hospital or the Oregon State Asylum was started by James C. Hawthorne, which is obviously who the Hawthorne Bridge is named after. You know, he's got like areas, he's got streets and libraries and things so he's obviously a big deal along with the rich portland history i really like i really wanted to say something about the piddock mansion because i just i think that that place is fascinating and i love visiting there and just exploring different parts of the mansion that i haven't seen before and that has a ton of rich history too but i actually found out and i was disappointed with myself that i didn't already know this but it actually started construction in 1912 and it wasn't even finished until 1914 which by the way it has marble shipped in from Italy back in the early 1900s. So just, yeah, it's incredible. It's beautiful. If you haven't gone to visit, it's definitely worth it. And it's funny because even when I looked up Portland history, like timeline, like literally every list has something for the year prior and the year after, but there's nothing that happened in Portland in 1911 that has, is listed. Not that things didn't happen there. It's just not listed. So... I guess we'll just go for some some national history. Ronald Reagan was born in 1911, so there's that. Iconic American, movie star turned president. And I swear, I, it was weird. Like, I just feel like 1911 was like, you know, like the 13th floor. Like, it's just mysterious and you just know, don't know anything about it. But then I found this article about this horrific fire that happened in New York on March 25th. And so this fire broke out in a t-shirt factory and it had like 700 women working in it from the ages of 16 all the way up to 23. And they literally, so the t-shirt factory was located on the seventh, eighth and ninth story. And the women literally were jumping from the windows, plummeting to their deaths, literally crushing the firemen who had like nets catching them. 148 women were killed, and I quote, within a few minutes after the first cry of fire had been yelled on the eighth floor of the building, 53 were lying half nude on the pavement. Bare legs in some cases were burned dark brown and waists and skirts in tattered showed they had been torn with the panic within the building before the girls got to the window to jump to their death, end quote. And I just want to pause here and be like, I feel like we're really crude in a lot of ways, but like the way that they used to describe like crime scenes and stuff like that, they were just like flat out graphic. Like they had no, they didn't skirt around anything. They were like, yup, they started jumping till their deaths. Their bare legs were burned to death. Like it's crazy. And another quote from the paper that was published like the next day said, on the sidewalk lay heaps of broken bodies. A policeman later went about with tags, which he fastened with wires to the wrists of the dead girls numbering each with a lead pencil. And I saw him fasten a tag, number 54, to the wrist of a girl who wore an engagement ring. A fireman who came downstairs from the building told me that there were at least 50 bodies in the big room on the seventh floor. Another fireman told me that more girls had jumped down an air shaft near the rear of the building. I went back there into the narrow court and saw a heap of dead girls." End quote. Like, 
I don't feel like today's papers would really write about things the way that they did back then. But anyways, 1911, there was a crazy, horrific fire. A ton of girls lost their lives. Super, super sad. And yeah, that's that sets the tone for what kind of case today we're going to have. So the year is 1911, and we are in Ardenwald, Oregon, which at first I was like, where the frick is that place? Like, I've never heard of it whatsoever. And that's when I kind of learned. So basically, it was like suburb of Portland, and essentially, it's like Milwaukee. So like nowadays, it's like the Milwaukee area. At the time, it was lo- it was actually called Ardenwald. A man has just recently built a two-room cabin for his wife and her two children. The cabin is no longer around today, but would have been located near the Portland Rail Line, and that still exists, and what would have been known as the Scott Woods. And I didn't look it up to see, like, does the Scott Woods still exist? I don't know. But basically, it's in between Clackamas and Multnomah County, so I'd say uh, pretty much where Tristan used to live. And the woods behind her old house, yeah, they were super sketchy. It would definitely be home to a multitude of bodies. Trust me. I looked every time I went. Anyways... Today's case, that's the focus. So the husband actually built his cabin for his family by himself, or at least that's what we're told. And they moved into it in like late May, early June. So like I said, it's essentially just like this two room cabin with a main room for like the kitchen and living room. And then I guess uh, one bedroom. And I believe it was just a room for the couple. So like I asked like, where are the kids sleeping? Do they not have a place? Or what, where was, did they just get like a cupboard? Is this Harry Potter? I don't know. And also I wondered, like, it didn't mention anything about a bathroom. So like, did they have an outhouse? Because I don't know. I'm, it didn't mention one, but that doesn't mean that there didn't, like, it doesn't mean that one didn't exist. You know what I mean? And I looked it up because I'm dumb. And indoor plumbing was common in the 1840s, which would have been like 50 years prior to this. So like they should have had indoor plumbing. So there should have been a bathroom, but there's no mention of a bathroom. And none of this has anything to do with anything. That's just me rambling. So you're welcome. I also learned that the family moved in before the cabin was even finished. So like, yes, it had its walls, it had its roof, windows, doors, blah, 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 all that. But like, it wasn't fully done. I don't know. I'm assuming like the interior was incomplete. It's, it's unknown. All around doesn't sound fun to me, to be honest, but whatever. That's what they did. In this cabin, we find the Hill family, and it consisted of William, or Will as he went by, and his bride, Ruth. Now, Ruth had two kids, a boy and a girl, from her previous marriage, and one article that I read claimed that she was a widow, but I'm pretty sure she just, like, got divorced and took the kids because they had, like, been living in Seattle. The kids were named Philip and Dorothy. There's nothing to say like, oh, the dad was abusive or whatever. Honestly, I don't know. Make something up. And that's what happened because I don't really have anything. Also, it's kind of weird because some accounts differ. Some say that Philip was around eight years old and Dorothy was six, where I also read that Dorothy was only four. So I'm not entirely sure how old exactly the children were, but definitely under the age of 10, the boy was older. It's also one of those things, like, it's hard when we have, like, such an old case because not everything was, like, super accurate or not everything is known and passed on. But before we get into this, um, I want you to, like, pay attention and really think about the story that I'm telling you and see if it reminds you of anything or any other crimes that have taken place. Okay? Just put that in your back pocket. Also, 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 this is just totally, like, a side random note, but there's this house 
that's like a legend of being super haunted in the Portland area. Like I'm sure there are tons of houses, but this one in particular is across from the Waverly Country Club. And I wish, I wish there was like actual info on it because trust me, I've looked and I've driven by the house. So I know that it exists, but it's super, super creepy. It was supposedly haunted and I wish that we could cover it. I wish I knew the full story behind it because part of me thinks like it just kind of became folklore. But essentially, it was like somebody like committed suicide in the house and it's been empty ever since because it's so haunted. And that was like back in like the 50s. So anyways. So the year is 1911. We're in a cabin in a community called Ardenwald in Oregon. The Hill family resides in this cabin. This time of year, it was the fifth annual Rose Festival, which actually started in 1907. So this year, they actually celebrated 115 years. So that's kind of cool. Like, I always love going to the Rose Test Garden, and I always go see who the new princess was and all that kind of stuff. It was the morning of June 9th when the neighbor of the Hill family noticed that the Hill home was, like, unusually quiet, which was weird for them as there were two small children living in the house. And we all know once you have kids, even if you have one kid, like, your house is always noisy. So it's a thing. The neighbor was named Miss Sarah Matthews, and she and Ruth Hill had become friends of sorts and would chat in the mornings after their husbands would leave home for the day going to work at the local Portland gas company. From what I understand, like, the men would leave for the light rail, like, at the same time, so I don't know, they just kind of became acquainted that way. And again, I'm so sorry because I keep having these, like, little rabbit trails, but does anyone remember the creepy haunted Gasco building that was demolished in, like, 2015? Because I certainly do, because I was living up there, and for some reason I was like, ooh, I'm going to Google haunted houses in Portland, and I'm going to go drive around. And I had heard that the St. John's Bridge was haunted, which I thought about maybe covering that, but I don't know. We'll see. But anyways, there used to be this building that was there and um, it had been abandoned for years and had, of course, a bunch of asbestos and stuff like that. And apparently a group in Portland was trying to save it. And I remember driving by it and I remember seeing like signs like save the Gasco building. And they needed like $2 million to restore this building. And so they started selling like um, t-shirts and stuff. And they only ended up making like 4000 which is just kind of sad. But it was super creepy, definitely in terrible condition, but super historical. And yeah, it just, where they worked reminded me of that. So there's that. Back to the story. It was morning and Miss Matthews hadn't heard or seen from the hills all day. So out of concern, she decided she was just going to pop in and make sure that everybody was okay. What we don't know is how far away she was. Like, I don't know how close her house was or anything like that. I mean, if this is a cabin in a wooded area, I can't imagine the homes being, like, cookie cutter, like, right next to each other or anything. But either way, she decides, I'm going to go check things out because she thought it was weird that she hadn't heard from them. When she arrived at the home, the windows were covered. Again, I don't know if that was the norm, if this was suspicious, but either way, the front door was locked, and so she decided to go through the back, and that's when she made the grisly discovery of the bodies of the entire Hill family. All of the family had been bludgeoned to death by an axe. So here's where it immediately starts getting messy, because there's multiple reports, multiple explanations, which makes it kind of intriguing, but at the same time confusing, and then you just have to piece it together yourself, and here we go. So first, let's start with uh, there were different versions of where the bodies were found. For starters, there's one resource that I read that stated Miss Matthews tried the locked front door and then proceeded to the back door, finding the bodies as she entered. 
Whereas another source claims that she peeked through the front window, and that's actually where she saw the body of Dorothy first in her own bed, and then she immediately called the police. So again, I don't know if she entered the home and found the bodies, if she just saw the bodies through the windows, even though the windows were covered. Either way, we do know she was the initial one to make the discovery. Now, I can only imagine being like, oh, I'm going to go see what the neighbors are up to and thinking like, oh, everybody's just sick. I'm sorry. And then actually showing up and being like, oh, okay, everybody's dead. So I don't know how this case isn't more well known. I don't know if it's part of the fact that it's so old, like it just didn't get its recognition in that sense. It wasn't talked about, reported on. But either way, it's pretty intense. Upon the arrival of the authorities, they find Will and his wife, Ruth, deceased in their bed. It's believed that they were actually posed or that they were at least placed in their bed. So it's been said that they weren't even murdered in their beds, but I don't know. Her body was on top of his to the point that the police didn't even realize that there was another person in there. They just saw her. And it wasn't until they got closer that they were like, oh, snap, there's another human being under there. It was noted that his skull was almost cut in two. So whoever did this was a very rageful, angry human. Initially, I thought, you know, maybe was it one of the exes? I don't know. But we'll talk about suspects later on. It was determined um, that the order of the deaths was Will first and then Ruth, followed by Philip and Dorothy last. Like I said, there's some difference as to whether like where the bodies were found and like how they were put there. Uh, One account points to each of the members being found in their own beds, but I've also read that they were just placed within the cabin. Um, But every single person, the cause of death was caused by an axe. Um, And it was an axe that didn't even belong to the family, which it's thought that it must have been taken from one of the neighbors who lived about a quarter of a mile from the hill house. But it wasn't the Matthews. It was like another family. The murder weapon was apparently found by the bed of the young daughter. So these kids did have a bed, but I just don't know if they had a room in this house. So here we are. We have this family brutally murdered by somebody. It's 1911. So I have no idea what the procedures look like for the police because I know at least in the 20s, as soon as a crime was announced, everybody and their mom would show up, arrive on scene, start oogling and basically messing things up, walking all over crime scenes, messing up everything like evidence wise. And this is 10 years prior. So I don't know how this was handled. I don't know if because it was like in the woods, like was it not Was it initially, like, not known what had happened? Like, I have no idea. But I did look it up, and fingerprinting was discovered, if you will, in in 1892. However, at that point, like, it wasn't a thing used in crimes or identifying people until 1911. So I don't know. All it said was like, oh, it happened in 1911. But did it happen prior to this murder or did it happen, you know, after this murder? Would they have used fingerprinting? Would they have had like the ability or the not? I don't want to say like the smarts, but like, you know, were they was it even something on their radar to try to collect at the time? I have no idea. I do know that there were fingerprints found in the home and on the bodies of the two kids. But again, I don't know if this was before they start started thinking like, oh, hey, we can use fingerprints to trace people or whether or not they were like, oh, yeah, we can tell somebody touched this because it has a fingerprint here. That's something that like we really don't know. So that's annoying. Also, 
Sadly, it was learned that Dorothy, who was at, at the very most under the age of six, and Ruth, so both the mom and the daughter, were, and I quote, assaulted in outrageous fashion, which is honestly how I just want to um, further refer to sexual assaults because I just like it better because it just, I don't know. So I'm not entirely sure if autopsies were actually performed on the bodies, but I do know that they brought like a coroner out and uh, they were able to do a report from that. And it was identified and just kind of like a heads up because it's like super graphic, but starting with Will, and in my personal opinion, I feel like he's kind of the worst. His face was completely crushed on the right side, literally deforming him. Ruth had a blow to the face stretching from her eye to the rest of her face, like breaking her teeth and her jaw. I also thought it was kind of interesting that both Will and Ruth's wax were on the right side of their faces. So like they were attacked from the same side, essentially. Philip was actually said to have been killed by the handle of the axe. And then Dorothy had blows to the front and back of her head. The most disturbing fact of all was that it was said that her assault had happened prior to her death, whereas Ruth, it was, it was posthumous, like it was after she died. The bloody fingerprints were found on the boy's arm and on the little girl's body. Uh, for obvious reasons, the whole Portland area kind of like went into a frenzy. So like once it was reported and once it was learned what had happened, like everybody started to freak out. Word of mouth was like going crazy. From what I read, people were scared out of their minds, which, you know, makes sense. But also the homeless were kind of freaking out because, first of all, they were like, wait a minute, we're going to be suspects because everybody looks down on us and thinks that we're whatever. But then at the same time, like vigilantes were out roaming around prowling the areas hoping to catch the guy. So like everybody was on edge and nobody felt safe. And it definitely gives me like purge vibes. Like I only watched the first purge, so don't judge me, but definitely something like that. The cops were baffled to say the least. And right from the start, they were not even sure who to look at. As I said before, Ruth had been married and the father of her two kids wasn't Will. But I also learned that Will had been married previously too. He was originally from the Washington area and his former wife and her new husband were already like ruled out as suspects. So they checked into them and they were like, yep, nope, wasn't you, moving on. And I don't know full details about checking into them whatsoever. Like that, all it says is like they were ruled out. So that's all we got. So the family had also been robbed and some of the jewelry was missing. The police brought in bloodhounds to search the area, but kind of like nothing became of it. Everyone's freak freaking out. People are fearing that there's a monster on the loose, while others are fearing that they're going to be pointed at as the monster. So people start putting locks on their doors and had their guns loaded. So it was a pretty scary time. But if you are interested in true crime whatsoever, and if you are interested in crimes that happened a long time ago, then you should have been picking up on some of the things about this case. So what I find interesting about this case is the fact that it almost mirrors another case that is extremely famous. And again, that's why I don't understand why this doesn't like, I did not know about this until I started looking up things like, oh, I need cases to cover. Like what's something that happened in the Pacific Northwest, blah, blah, blah. And then I found this case. I don't understand how I couldn't, I didn't know about this case beforehand, but Let's go ahead and I'll just give you like five seconds to think like, hmm, an axe murderer case. What does this remind me of? 
That's right. The Vasilla Axe Murders, which this is even weirder. The Vasilla Axe Murders actually happened one year and one day after this one. So, like, the stuff that happened in Oregon happened in 1911, and the Vasilla Axe Murders happened in 1912 to the freaking next day. Coincidence? Guys, I don't believe in coincidences. So, it's just super, super interesting. Um, a few eerily similar details include the fact that the murder weapon was picked up along the way. So the Vasilla Axe murders, when they were murdered, it wasn't by an axe that belonged to them, just like this axe that the Hill family was murdered by didn't belong to them. Also, they were killed via axe, okay? Same thing. But something that's specific to the Vasilla Axe murders is there was no injury made below the head. In both the Hill family and, gosh, I don't even remember what their names are, so don't judge me, but, like, they didn't have anything below the head. Also, um, the women slash girls were sexually assaulted. That's another thing that happened with the Fasilla Axe murders as well. Also, uh, just to clarify, because I don't think that we've said this yet, to this day, this crime remains unsolved, and I'm pretty positive the Fasilla Axe murders has never been solved either. So, is it possible, is it plausible that Whoever did this started a rampage uh, here and then made their way towards Iowa. Yeah, guys, you bet. It could have been the same freaking person. So before we get into suspects, I just want to give some background on um, the Hills and their respective families. So apparently the day before the murder, Ruth actually went into town to go see her dad. Her father and her brothers were very successful, well-respected lawyers in town, a.k.a. Ruth came from money. And on June 8th, she was not a happy woman. Like, it was reported by multiple people, whoever saw her when she came into the lawyer's office, whoever saw her on the train, blah, 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 whatever. Everybody was like, yes, yeah, she was pissed. Something was wrong. But there's no rhyme, no reason as to why she was this way. And nobody, like, nobody has any explanation for why she was upset. I don't know if, like it was some sort of like family ordeal and like nobody came forward but i guess it's basically just decided that like nobody knows why she was mad which again guys this sounds real suspicious to me right so ruth was actually born ruth cowing and she lived in minnesota until she was 11 and then her family relocated to oregon city and then she remained there until she was married for the first time she was a well-rounded gal. She was well-liked. She spent her free time with her family. They'd go to the coast. When she graduated high school, she decided to become a nurse, so she moved to Portland, and she worked at the Good Samaritan Hospital, where she met a man named James Rintoul. I think I'm saying that right? R-A-N-T-O-U-L? Rintoul? Uh, he was a sergeant major vet, and he had just returned from the serving at in the Spanish-American War. He was in real estate, so uh, when they got married, they ended up moving up to Seattle, where they had their first son, Philip. Then, James got a job working for the Oregonian as a reporter, so they came back to Portland, and that's when they had their second child, Dorothy. Three short years later, the marriage dissolved, and he left and went to Utah, and that's kind of like the last you hear about him. Again, it's not super clear if there were more issues, but I did uh, read one 
newspaper article that said like he may have had a drinking problem but seriously like what's up with dudes just like ditching their kids and like never seeing them again like that's not uncommon at all but it's so weird i guess with technology now like it's a lot different it'd be easier for guys to just be like yep see ya and never come back going to get milk that's sad anyways so the divorce was in 1908 and by 1910 ruth had already met and married will not sure how or when that romance started, but nonetheless, they were essentially still newlyweds by the time that they were murdered, which is kind of sad. Not kind of sad. It is sad. Shut up, Taylor. That's stupid. So we know a little bit more about Ruth than we know about William because, like I said, she kind of came from, like, a well-known family, so there was more background there. And I don't know if, like, it was, like, a socialite-type family where, like, they were just – they had money. They were wealthy, so they were well-known. Whereas Will, he kind of came from, like, an average family. Like, I don't mean to say that in any other way other than, like, he just, I don't know, he was normal. They just didn't know a bunch of stuff about him, I guess. Also, I do think it's kind of weird because I was actually surprised to learn that he was born and raised in Minnesota, too. I'm not sure if that, like, played a part in, like, how they ended up, like, getting together. Like, oh, you're from Minnesota? What? I'm from Minnesota. I don't know. Um... And who knows, maybe it played a part into why they were attacked because they were from the Midwest. Who freaking knows? But he lived his entire life being born um, March 25th, 1880 in Minnesota. Ruth was born in 1889, so she was a bit younger than he was. Um, and I did say like he was married prior to Ruth. So he actually met his wife and they lived in Minnesota and they got married at 19. So Ruth would have been like 10, like weird, gross. Uh, that couple didn't have any kids. And after some time, they ended up moving to Washington with her family. And then as soon as they like moved to Washington, suddenly like the marriage ended. Her name was Lula. Lula? And she moved back to Minnesota and remarried. And Will ended up staying in Washington where he, of course, ended up meeting Ruth, who 10 years later, she was making, designing, and selling hats. How fancy. Neither of the two of them had any, any enemies, more or less. I feel like they just kind of like blended in. Like nobody, they didn't have anybody who hated them. They didn't have anybody who was like overly in love with them or anything like that, but like not bad humans, I guess is what I'm saying. So let's go ahead and recap, shall we? Will and Ruth, both on their second marriage, not that it matters, living in a cabin in the Metro woods, raising her babies when they are brutally attacked and murdered. Ruth visits her family's law firm the day before, peeved about something, but nobody knows. Her dad doesn't know, her brothers don't know, and I just think that that's weird too. Uh, they don't have any enemies, they don't have a reason to have died, so what the frick happened? Thoughts? Theories? Opinions? I wish I could hear. I would wait and I would listen. Too bad this is in a live stream and you could just type your answer in. All right, so let's move on to the suspects, okay? So first off, we have this dude named Edward Ramsey. Locally, he's known by the kids as Nutty Ed. This guy's just gross. Like, honestly, he just sounds like such a creep. Um, he was known for being a pedophile. Great. And he was basically just like a vagrant who hung out in the slums and molested young boys. Why is this guy on the streets? I don't understand. Why, why has nobody just like taken him out at this point? At least put him in jail. All right. Do, do something to get him away from the children, please. He was initially looked at because of the pedophilia, 
But he was more interested in boys, and because the women were the ones who were assaulted, he was eventually cleared. So, when he was picked up, he was actually trying to cross the Willamette in a makeshift raft. I just get, like, random things that pop into my head, so I just think of, like, Huckleberry Finn on that, like, little raft that he made. Knowing this guy was a creep, he was definitely a target, so he would have been one of those homeless people that would have been, like, worried about their own safety, feeling like somebody was going to try to attack them, thinking they were the ones responsible. And he was a smaller, thin man, the height of 5'7", weighing only 145 pounds. So seriously, like, I feel like he's tiny. He was questioned and said he couldn't recall where he was on the night of June 8th, which, to me, what? You don't remember? Oh, I don't remember what I was doing on June 8th. Like, well, that doesn't sound good, nutty Ed. Neither does your name. But we all know just because somebody is creepy and weird doesn't mean that he is the perp, unfortunately. So they end up just letting him go. Next up, we have a man by the name of William Riggin. He was an interesting character and had a pretty interesting backstory. So his background was that he was born to his parents and that his mom had died young. Super sad. He was an only child of his mother and father. However, his dad had previous children, so had had a family first, then marries this late or is with this lady, has a baby with her, she dies. So then he went on to marry a 17-year-old girl and then have six more kids with her. What the farts, guys? Like, no judgment. I'm just saying, like, how many kids do you have, bro? Like, 12, 13? I guess that was kind of like a normal thing, but anyways. To me, that just sounds like a lot of chaos, all right? That's all I'm saying. So sometime in between the shuffle of his childhood and his adolescence, uh, he decided to steal a horse. Now, at the time, he might as well have been stealing a car. Uh, Stealing a car was for the uber rich. Stealing a horse was a means of transportation and work and all of those kind of things. So it was a huge crime. And they ended up sending him away to go live at reform school until he was of age. Now, this really wasn't helpful for him personally because it really just introduced him to far worse criminals than himself. And these boys, they didn't influence him in a positive way whatsoever. So he got out at 18. Within a few years, he ended up going to the state penitentiary for larceny. After that, he just decided that the hobo life was the best fit for himself. And that's where he met his good old buddy, Ed Ramsey. Yeah, that Ed Ramsey. The guy who was the first suspect. So already this guy's got a bad rep because he's friends with Nutty Ed. No, no, you don't get to associate yourself with that guy and then have a good reputation. Together, they were known as Jungle Buzzards, which I guess is a name for like homeless people who lived in the woods. Jungle Buzzards. Yeah, you want to insult somebody? Call him a Jungle Buzzard because it's not a nice thing. And yes, uh, these guys, the woods in which they were living in was, of course, the Scott Woods, which is also where the Hill family cabin was. Coincidence? I don't know, guys. You decide. So in 1917, six years after the murder, Riggin ends up getting caught in some scandal in Hillsborough involving the death of a man and some sort of, like, love triangle, but he wasn't even the lover of the wife. And actually... The wife and her lover were convicted, apparently, on circumstantial evidence in 1915. So, okay, so there's this weird, like, love triangle, right? Where it's, like, the husband, the wife, the lover, whatever. And the husband ends up dying, and then the lover and the wife 
they end up getting convicted and then Riggins throws himself in there for some reason two years after and he details the crime but then he also confesses to the deaths of the Hill family. Now what makes this even more interesting is the fact that he claims that Ed Ramsey who's also had this like alias known as William Flynn and I just want to say like why are all criminals named William? Why is everybody named William? So first he's like hey I really didn't kill them. I was just a lookout for Charlie Brown and Willie Flynn, right? Then, later on, he says in a more detailed confession that Charlie Brown actually fled, and it was just the jungle buzzards who were responsible for the Hill murder, but he never fully admitted to killing them himself, but he did implicate himself for, like, being in the house. And trust me, I'm just as confused as you are. Like, what? What are you getting at, Willie? Who, do, who did it? Why do you know these things? What happened? And six years later, that's when you decide to confess to things? Makes no sense. Now, some suggest that his first confession was just like him trying to get attention. Like, oh, he just wanted the notoriety that he was responsible for it, which, yeah, we know that happens. Um, but some of his family ended up cooperating that he was in the area at the time, but that that didn't make him the killer. So they're like, well, yeah, he was there, but he didn't do it. Oh, okay, sure, Jan. Also, his second confession has been said to have been coached because they he had, like, a lot more accurate details that weren't there from the first confession. So it's like, oh, did somebody just, like, feed you things because they wanted you to take the fall for it? I have no idea. He also claims that he was there to rob the hills and that they ended up grabbing the axe from the way in, but I also didn't read any clarification on, like, who actually did the killing. So he says they're responsible, but he doesn't say, like, which one of them did it. So, real helpful. Another fun fact about Reagan is that he was known to have bipolar and antisocial personality disorder. So he never went to prison for either of the confessions, but by 1930, he was actually at Oregon State Hospital with paranoid schizophrenia, so he ended up just spending the rest of his life there. So yeah, another true possibility uh, as a suspect. Do we know if it was him and if his confessions were true? To that, I, you know, I just give the shrugging emoji because I don't know. I don't know. The last suspect we're going to discuss is a man by the name of Nathan Harvey. Now, this fella, he's interesting, to say the least. First off, Mr. Harvey was, in fact, a neighbor of the Hill family. Now, he owned a nursery just 100 yards from the cabin, and apparently, him and Mr. Hill, they were not on good terms. A recipe for disaster, in my opinion. Oh, I also forgot to mention uh, Ruth's family. They were successful lawyers because they were primarily in the business of helping families with the Homestead Act. And I had to look that up. So, yeah, I don't judge you for not knowing what it is. But essentially, it's where people could get 100 acres, 160 acres of land for free as long as they used it for agriculture within five years. So the family, they were lawyers. They were well acquainted with land issues. Now, I don't know what the disputes were between Harvey and Mr. Hill, but it was enough for people to say in the area that they knew, like, they were not on good terms. So, the Hill family has their little cabin, right? And then Homeboy's got his acreage of a nursery, and I don't even know what kind of nursery it was. Like, was it a tree farm? Who freaking knows? I have no idea. 
but Mr. Harvey was actually from Iowa. And I want to say that again. Mr. Harvey was from Iowa. Guys, where did the Vasilla Axe murders take place? In Iowa. Not that that's pointing any fingers at anybody, but it's just saying, hold on to that. Keep that in your back pocket. Uh, and his past was actually pretty dark. And by dark, I kind of mean like he was most likely already a murderer who seemingly got away with it. A girl was actually found dead on his property, which I guess I guess it could have been anyone. Like just because somebody dies in your house or dies on your property doesn't mean you're responsible for it. I get that. But... I don't know. People always seem to like link the death to him and it was highly suspected that he was the one responsible. Also, his brother actually shot their mom to death. <laughs> and another uh, brother mysteriously drowned in a creek nearby. So whether all of this stuff was just coincidence, I have no idea. So let's go ahead and let's just recap this. Mr. Harvey is from Iowa, where the Vasilla Axe murders took place. All right? First that. Uh, secondly, his brother shot his mom in the face. So there's a death there. And mysteriously, another brother dies in their freaking... What is it? Uh, dies in the creek nearby their house. And the dead body of a young girl is found on his property. So... Mr. Harvey already has three strikes against him, in my opinion. So it's either they have just, like, super, super terrible luck, or there's more to the story. And that's unfortunately all I know. So, yeah, I wish I knew the rest, too, but we don't. So we just get to make assumptions, and I just get to point fingers at him and say, mm, number one suspect in my head. Also, Mr. Harvey was known for making improper comments to women in the area, and he was just really insulting. So he wasn't exactly known for being an outstanding member of society. In December of 1911, which would have been, what, months after the deaths, he was actually arrested for the murders of the Hill family. So initially the cops were like, yeah, we think it's this guy too. However, meetings were held and people protested and over 500 signatures were provided to drop the charges against him. And I just wonder, like, what? You can do that. You could just sign a petition and be like, hey, we don't think that this guy did it, so you should take him out. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. That's not the way the law works now, but it's just interesting to say the least. But then later on, it was actually rumored that people were more fearful of Mr. Harvey and that some people could have had proof and evidence that he was the murderer, but because everybody was more afraid of him than anything, they all signed it and he ended up being released two days later. So, by February 1912, a judge signed something stating that Harvey was cleared and that he was no longer a suspect. So, with Harvey, Riggin, and Ed Ramsey, that's three possible suspects with reason and possible circumstantial evidence for them being the ones responsible. Like, they each had something that, like, hmm, yeah, it could have been them. But I really don't know. I do think it's interesting that Riggin had the info that he did. But again, it could have easily been coached or coerced or provided for by police officers or anybody like that just because they wanted to, like, get this case solved. Because, again, it to this day, it still remains unsolved. But also, I just have to point the fact, you know, with his instability of his meth 
mental health that kind of is questionable. But at the same time, you know, sometimes the the ones who run around saying like the craziest things are the ones who are telling the truth, you know? Harvey is definitely a top suspect on my list just because he has too many coincidental connections in my opinion. And I just, the fact that he is from Iowa and another murder happened in Iowa, that just is too real for me. And I could be completely wrong, but it's just, I don't know. In all honesty, we all could be wrong. And it could be some mastermind serial killer who was responsible for the Vasilla Axe murders. Or even worse, even worse, it could just be some random person and we don't know who it is. I also do think it's weird that this one happened first. But there's also connections that happened in similar ways in places like Colorado. And actually, I believe that there was a serial killer who was on the loose committing axe murders starting in 1911, which was the same year that the Hill family, but it was like all over like the West Coast. So it could be super possible that whoever did this was the one responsible for all of them. We really just don't know. So yeah, that is the unsolved case of the Ardenwald axe murders. If I had to pick one, I mean, obviously, I I want to go with Nathan Harvey, but there is other stuff out there that it's possible that it wasn't him. Again, I do think it's super, super interesting that there were multiple axe murders happening on the West Coast and that nobody was ever caught. And yeah, so I just wonder, like, what are your guys' thoughts? What do you think? With all the information that you have, do you magically know something that I don't know? Oh, 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 and I totally forgot to mention this. So it was really interesting because somebody did say that one of the, um, I think it was one of the brothers or maybe it was the dad of Ruth ended up going up and trying to, um, like, showed up with a gun to shoot I think it was Harvey and the gun ended up not being able to go off so he ended up just like running away but it was super interesting to hear that like they had somebody who they thought in mind was the one responsible for it and they tried to get their revenge but the gun ended up not going off and so it just kind of turned into like this weird awkward thing but yeah I just I don't know it's one of those things that I guess we'll just never know who was the one who actually did it. And I I do wonder, like, if, if this case had taken place, you know, even 50 years after, instead of happening in 1911, you know, had it happened in, like, the 60s, would we have easily been able to, like, figure out who it was? I have no idea. But I appreciate you for listening, and... I think it's super sad that the Hill family was new to becoming a family and that their lives were taken too soon. And I think it's just really sad for the family that there was no closure and as to what actually happened. And, you know, it it just makes me wonder, was there a sinister reason behind it? Like, did they have an enemy and just nobody knew about it? Or is it one of those things they were just chosen at random and just happened to be the unlucky ones? I have no idea. So yeah, would love to know what your thoughts are if you have any insider scoop that I have no idea about. And I appreciate you listening and I will see you next week. Bye.